Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we are going to have a special segment to recognize the 100th birthday of jazz legend Thelonious Monk, one of my favorite performers. We're also going to have one of my other favorite performers in studio, Marion Hayden, a jazz bassist from Detroit, will be here to talk about uh, the celebration of Monk's 100th birthday at the Charles H. Wright this weekend. You're not going to want to miss that segment. Uh, I love talking about music on the show. I love playing music on the show. And Thelonious Monk, as I said, really falls into the category of one of my absolute favorites. We'll also have a segment a little later to talk about uh, candidates for city council. Uh, Sheila Cockrell, co-founder of Citizen Detroit at Wayne State University and former city councilwoman has been holding forums for council candidates. And lots of folks have been showing up to ask questions and learn more about the choices on the ballot. There hadn't been a terrible amount of attention to council races this time. I think there are some reasons for that that we'll talk about with Sheila. But you also have the opportunity to engage with Citizen Detroit and learn more about what is actually going on. Also remember that uh, if you're walking into work or otherwise stepping away from your radio, you don't have to miss out on Detroit today. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit today, and we will be available whenever and wherever you are ready. Up front today, President Trump has said many times that he thinks the Iran nuclear deal is bad for America. He has said that it was never a good idea, that it hasn't worked since we signed it, and that the United States is being made a fool of. And now he's threatening to leave the pack unilaterally. But it appears most people in Washington think the United States should honor the deal, even if they don't necessarily agree with its precepts. What's the future of this still very young agreement between uneasy and unfamiliar partners? Here to help us sort through what is going on with the Iran nuclear deal is Saeed Khan. He is an expert in Near and Middle East politics and history, a lecturer at Wayne State University, also recently a personal guest of the King of Saudi Arabia to perform the Hajj. We're going to talk a little about that later. But Saeed Khan, first, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. I prefer this invitation. <laughs> uh, really? Really? <laughs> See, that's why we got to talk about that. I think that's a, an extraordinary uh, thing to have done, and it, we would definitely want to get to that uh, a little later in the show. But first, let's talk about this Iran nuclear deal and President Trump, the things that he's saying. You know, I, I, I'm in a space now where I don't know how much to take seriously that he says or how much knowledge or understanding to ascribe to the things that he says. Uh, but in this context, uh, talking this way about a deal that is so new, that was so difficult to put together and has uh, an international coalition behind it, that's pretty fragile is what my reading is, is that there is still a lot of um, apprehension, I guess, about how this is all going to work. That that. When he is saying these things about a deal like this, that it has more peril, I guess, or potential peril than some of the other things that he's doing. Is that is that your sense of it? Well, we have to remember, Stephen, that along with uh, uh, the uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the uh, the Iran nuclear deal has been one of 
uh, the president's two longest-lasting complaints yes. and uh, and campaign planks. He was never for this. He was never for this. And in fact, in his usual hyperbolic language, he's called this the worst deal ever uh, that the United States has made. Uh, but at the same time, there's a there's a, begrudg- uh, a begrudging acceptance, as as you pointed out, even by those who were critics of the deal initially on Capitol Hill, that it is working, that it is providing containment, and perhaps most importantly, that it is taking a, an area off the checklist of worries and woes for American foreign policy at a time where there are plenty on that list and, of course, new ones that are emerging with greater severity and intensity in the case of North Korea. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about what the president's complaints about the the Iran deal are. I mean, what what is it about this deal he doesn't like? And more importantly, what is it that he says he would rather be doing than what we are doing? All of his complaints about the Iran nuclear deal do not actually have anything to do with the issue of whether Iran is complying with the deal. Uh, Iran is certainly uh, up to certain activities in the Middle East. Uh, The biggest uh, criticisms are its uh, sponsorship of Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, its uh, uh, patronage of Assad in Syria, its destabilization um, efforts in Yemen, uh, as well as, according to the United States, state sponsorship of, uh, of terrorism, none of which are addressed in the nuclear deal itself. Uh, another big uh, factor that is oftentimes cited is uh, nucle- uh, the Iranians test-firing uh, missiles. Again, something that was never in the purview or the scope of the deal. So the president is arguing that he would uh, not have a deal that is, as in his words, deficient as it is that would also cover all a host of sins, so to speak. Uh, But as you also pointed out earlier, that this was a deal that was brokered over several years Mm -hmm. with the so-called P5 plus one, which would be the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, the United States, uh, Great Britain, France, Russia, and China, as well as Germany. So there was a meticulous and painstaking level of diplomacy that was going back and forth and uh, a pretty pragmatic approach that they were going to stay focused on the issue of nuclear proliferation, which was uh, achieved through this deal. And as recently as October the 3rd, certification by the United States that Iran has been in full compliance of that uh, accord. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if what we're seeing here is the the kind of uh, perfect being the enemy of the good that this president sort of thrives on. I mean, he, he if you want to compare this, for instance, to his criticisms of the Affordable Care Act, it seems to be that, hey, we didn't accomplish all of these things that, that, I, that I think we need to accomplish with this agreement. And therefore, we got to scrap the whole thing and go back to the beginning. Same thing here with Iran. He's saying you didn't get everything that you wanted, so it's no good. And in some ways, I feel like that plays a little bit to his base, right? I mean, these are these are people who want things to be better. They they think in absolutes, and so uh, in in some way, he's sort of responding, I guess, uh, to that to that desire they have to make things absolutely the way they want them, and not understanding that uh, in all of these uh, spheres and with all of these issues. It really is about incremental progress and change. Well, I think that, to be fair, Stephen, I think it's part of the the, the national anthropology right now to uh, focus on base, 
to focus on extremes and really move away from any kind of centrist or compromising position. Mm -hmm. I mean, here we have not just among the Trump base, but I would uh, suspect also on the political opposite end, people who are unwilling to try to find a compromise on 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 these issues and 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 many others. And what this really then shows is his ability to go ahead and allow for the perpetuation of gridlock because of providing for people the illusion of this elusive deal, which will never, ever be perfected. There's never going to be a situation where there's a comprehensive deal which will solve all the miseries and all of the problems. But what the P5 plus one and the uh, Iran nuclear deal showed was that, as you said, an incremental way of building trust uh, among adversaries where there was none to begin with and to try to build upon that. Now, how much this is going to be a big geopolitical game of snakes and ladders and how uh, 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 the how uh, steep is the snake or the chute coming back down, uh, we really don't know what are going to be the implications. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Saeed Khan. He's an expert in Near and Middle East politics and history, a lecturer at Wayne State University. We're talking about the Iran nuclear deal that Donald Trump says is no good and that we ought to withdraw from and reframe with a tougher stance on uh, the state that wants to get to uh, nuclear power. Uh, What do you think about that? Do you think the president is right that the Iran deal was never any good, is not working, and that we ought to withdraw and reframe it? Or do you think this is yet another example of the president overreacting or maybe misunderstanding uh, a complicated issue and trying to whip people up in his base uh, to get excited about something that probably is not possible. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Also, uh, call and tell us if you worry more generally about the kinds of statements this president is making about international affairs. Think not just about Iran, but also about North Korea, the kind of uh, brinksmanship that he is engaged with with the leader in that country. Uh, is this a president who has not quite understood yet Uh, the delicate kinds of nuance that's required when you're dealing with international affairs. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Um, uh, Saeed, Trump says this deal does not work, and he says that Iran has been violating it from day one. There are some folks who agree with that point. I, I guess short of withdrawing from it, what are the things that are possible to try to make Iran more compliant? Well, first of all, that's the whole problem. They have not been, uh, if one reads uh, the actual terms of the uh, the accord, Iran has not been uh, out of compliance of it. There are things that are being read into the deal. There are inferences that are being made. And certainly, uh, let's not uh, absolve 
Iran. Iran certainly takes provocative action when it uh, test fires uh, ballistic missiles, sure. uh, which of course could be used both for conventional as well as nuclear-tipped uh, uh, weaponry. Uh, it does so uh, uh, claiming the impunity that these are not part of the terms of the deal and therefore they, like any sovereign nation, are allowed to do that. But it certainly has to be seen as one that they know is intended to pull the tiger by the tail. Having said that, if there is a plan by uh, the president, he is trying to bank on the idea that by threatening Iran with either A, a resumption of the most uh, punitive sanctions possible uh, that were there during the, the real apex of, uh, of the conflict with mm-hmm. the country, mm-hmm. uh, that this is going to somehow the other uh, make Iran capitulate. Of course, that is presuming that the other European countries uh, have the stomach to do this. Yeah. One of the consequences of the Iran nuclear deal has been European countries sending in, in commercial investment into Iran. They have been trying to go back to business as usual because Iran is, after all, a very lucrative market for non-military uh, 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 goods and, and, and services. I mean, the commercial airline uh, uh, sector, for example, has a deficit of about nine. 100 aircraft. Airbus is certainly chomping on the bit, as is Bombardier. Uh, also, uh, tourism is a big thing in Iran because it has a two and a half million year uh, old uh, civilization. And so hotel chains like Ibis are starting to move in. So the Europeans have an awful lot invested already, and they see potentially invested in Iran. So if there is a resumption to some of the most punitive sanctions, which could happen with the um, invocation of what's called snapback sanctions by uh, the U.S. Congress, that's going to be very concerning for them. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Eric in Detroit. Eric, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thank you. Hi, Dr. Khan. Hi, Saeed. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Good. How are you? How's it going, Eric? Good. I actually wanted to ask ask for you to reflect upon uh, what I see as really a two-part issue. Number one, uh, what seems to be a a really gross lack of knowledge, according to our very own generals, uh, not just the Iranian nuclear deal, but nuclear proliferation, nuclear power in general. I've even heard that the president was unaware of who even had nuclear capacity and to what extent it was months into his term. And then the second thing I wanted to talk about is what seems to be a lack of collective knowledge across the United States on nuclear proliferation and really, and for that matter, even nuclear energy in general. This used to be such a huge issue mm-hmm. that sometimes crossed uh, you know, political lines. And it seems that Europe's still on board, but even the younger generation here, I work in the Peace and Conflict Studies Department uh, at Wayne State, and we have a nuclear proliferation panel that involves our director and others going and traveling around to different universities, different places, talking about it. And you don't see a lot of young people there at all. Hmm. So I'm just wondering if these two, uh, you know, if this sort of, for lack of a better term, uh, ignorance, um, you know, if you guys wanted to comment on that overall. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Uh, Said, I'll give you first crack at the Sure. Scene. Eric, as, as usual, uh, very, very insightful uh, comments and, and questions. On, on the issue of nuclear proliferation, I think we're operating off a couple of false premises. First of all, that Iran really was seeking a nuclear program. That has never really been substantiated. What we find, though, is that Iran is a very adept uh, player of what's called game theory and how they then are looking to achieve that Nash equilibrium by coming from a particular strength of either ambiguity or, or, or power and then trying to find where they can find that middle ground. And of course for Iran, 
chief among all of their uh, asks was the lifting of, of uh, the, the punitive sanctions against them. Now, on the issue of nuclear proliferation, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we've come a long way from Three Mile Island. We've come a long way from the China syndrome. We've come a long way from how we saw... Uh, both the use of nuclear energy in the United States, but also with the end of the Cold War. I think that we're dealing with a generation that really doesn't remember, uh, nor do they have any frame of reference of what it was like to hide under their school desks uh, and see movies like The Day After and all of the other nuclear apocalyptic <laughs> movies that were there. Now, apocalypse, if, uh, if you talk to millennials and other young people, involves zombies, yeah. uh, involves some other supernatural <laughs> beasts, and it's the Justice League that's going to come in. And, you know, pardon me for being flippant about this, but I think it's related that how culture now sees the issue of nuclear proliferation and the possibility of uh, global destruction as being somehow the other either collateral damage or an acceptable risk. And I don't know if that's due to video game culture where if everything is uh, destroyed, all you have to do is hit reset. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great answer there, Saeed. I'll let you have the last word on that. But Eric, thanks very much for uh, for the call and the comments. Let's go to Charlie in Detroit. Charlie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks, Stephen. Uh-huh. Um, I'm actually a little concerned, maybe a little more than concerned, that uh, the president is trying to uh, bait North Korea into a first strike uh-huh. so that he can... Uh, uh, <laughs> come on strong with a big retaliatory strike. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it, it certainly seems some something like that's what's going on. But but I also I also sometimes, I guess, hesitate to draw that conclusion because I, I guess I don't really believe that this president or anyone around him wants to have a nuclear conflict. I mean, that's an absurd end to any sort of strategy we've never done that uh, in exchange with another country and only one time in history have uh, have we ever used nuclear weapons against uh, against someone else I don't I, I guess I don't know that I feel like that's what he's trying to do I think he is trying to bully the North Korean leader into into some sort of um, uh, position that 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 he wants him to be in, but I don't know if he's trying to court an attack. Well, I think uh, what we have here that's unprecedented, Stephen, in the nuclear age is not the idea that we will use nuclear weapons. I think that it is considered such a horrific prospect that American presidents and actually world leaders as a whole have exercised a certain level of discursive discretion. Mm -hmm. The fact that they wouldn't even deign to put that on the table. And I recall that last year during the campaign, uh, the president, or then candidate Trump, was being interviewed by Chris Matthews. Mm -hmm. And he asked, in in not uh, some kind of uh, just uh, bemused way, uh, what's the point of having nuclear weapons if you're not going to use them? I mean, which uh, created just a collective gasp, not just in the studio, but I think probably globally. I mean, the the idea that I mean, I, I think there is a very real threat that North Korea will do something uh, irascible or or unpredict, unpredictable. I suppose. Um, Actually, I, w- I, w- I would disagree with that. Uh, it's very commonplace for American leaders and even, unfortunately, policymakers to impute upon others, whether it is Iran, whether it is North Korea, basically any adversary, that they somehow have a monopoly on irrationality or that this is going to be the impetus by which they operate. And I think if you really take a look at, and certainly 
speaking with uh, with high-profile Iranians. Uh, you know, I've had an opportunity to speak both with President Rouhani as well as Foreign Minister Javed Zarif a few times. And uh, the one thing that I would never accuse them of being is irrational. Is irrational, right? Uh, that's a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Okay, before I let you go, I do want to talk <laughs> about uh, your recent Hajj, which I think is one of the more moving religious rituals in the world. In fact, uh, millions of people uh, have gone to do it, and you had an opportunity to do it at the invitation of the King of Saudi Arabia. Please explain how, uh, yeah, I mean, how that I'm, was possible. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to work through how the invitation came through, but it did. Um, I received a phone call saying that uh, the custodian of the two holy mosques, which is, of course, the honorific by which he goes on these things, has invited you to take part in a, uh, a, a delegation of people to come on on his dime, so uh-huh. to speak, or his real, uh, for the Hajj. Uh, it was uh, something that, uh, I mean, it's an offer I couldn't refuse yeah, to borrow yeah. from a, another movie <laughs> altogether. Uh, and uh, to be fair, uh, uh, treated extremely, extremely well. But at the same time, one of the asks that they had was uh, some consultation on geopolitics. Yeah, And I think that that was colored with the idea that with uh, within the next probably few years, if not even sooner, the crown prince, a 32-year-old by the name of Mohammed bin Salman, who is in effect running the show on behalf of his father, who's in his 80s and and infirmed with, with a bit of dementia, they're trying to revamp Saudi Arabia. They also realize that the country or the kingdom has a major public relations issue. Sure. And despite the fact that they do have a very stalwart relationship with Washington and with other world capitals, they want to try to take things into the next level while demonstrating that they can take a punch from a uh, academic at Wayne State with his criticisms of the kingdom, <laughs> but at the same time also bringing about some social reforms. Case in point, uh, the the recent uh, declaration that uh, within a year women in Saudi Arabia will be allowed we'll be to drive. drive. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So these are monumental social engineering changes that are happening within the kingdom, and I think that the kingdom wanted uh, academics and others uh, from the United States. Uh, to bear witness uh, to uh, what their propositions were and to take it back to the United States, to audiences like this, and to provide explanation and analysis of it. Yeah. Uh, A quick question about the Hajj. Malcolm X, when he went uh, and and did it, talked about this great multiracial uh, world, I guess, of 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 Muslims that that surprised him, I think, to some extent, and really changed the way he saw not only his own faith but but his role in the faith. Uh, talk about what you saw uh, on the Hajj. Well, you certainly do see that, and I think in the case of Malcolm, his lens through which he saw Islam was certainly much narrower mm-hmm. uh, with his experience within the nation of Islam and the kind of binarism that that then created. Uh, fortunately, my experience has been much more multivalent and multicultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, living in a place like Detroit, uh, it is, uh, in all, for all intents and purposes, a microcosm of what you see at the Hajj. And I think that that's one of the major takeaways that we then can see when it comes to Islam in America. While people will converge in uh, Mecca for a few days every year for the Hajj, three and a half million, that level of diversity of Muslims exists in the United States on a daily basis. Wow. And, wow. I, and I think it's nice to see the validation for the American Muslim project uh, at such a solemn and such a sacred occasion as the Hajj. Yeah. Okay. Saeed Khan, expert in Near and Middle East politics and history, 
lecturer at Wayne State University. As always, thanks for being here with us on Detroit Today. Always great to be here. Thanks, Stephen. We will see you soon. Up next, we're going to talk to Sheila Cockrell about a series of candidate forums coming up before the election this November. Stay with us on Detroit Today.